turn to Matthew 20 in your Bible. Last week, we got to the end of chapter 19, and we came across the phrase, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And I said, let's wait for a week to talk about that, because the very next thing you see, remembering that there are no chapter divisions in the original book of Matthew, in his original epistle, he was not delineating chapters and verses. He was just writing a flowing narrative. And he went right from Jesus' statement, many who are first will be last and the last first, right to, for the kingdom of heaven is like. And so Jesus launched immediately into an explanation of what he meant by the phrase, many that are first to be last and the last first. So he actually explains it. He explains it by way of a parable, but then it also is understandable within the larger context of what we've been seeing and reading in the book of Matthew so far. One of the very consistent thematic elements of the book of Matthew has been the idea that to be part of the kingdom of heaven, you are going to be humbled. Humility is a characteristic of the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus demonstrated that by things like a child and said, unless you're like this child, you're not going to see the kingdom of heaven. Now, of course, he had to keep saying this because his disciples, his apostles were arguing about who was going to have primacy in the kingdom of heaven. And that's going to come up again this morning. You would think by now they'd kind of be over that. But they're not. They're still hearing Jesus talk about kingdom, and they still recognize that he is going to be the king. And they want to know, well, if you're king and you have the authority and it's going to be an expansive kingdom, um, you're going to need help. And so it would probably be good if we all had authority, too. Now, he has already told them that in the regeneration, we just saw it in the previous chapter, Verse 28, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. You would think that would be sufficient for them to go, okay, we do get some authority, okay. But we're going to see this morning that two of them send their mom in. We'll just get mom to do it. And she says... You know, when you come to your kingdom and you're on your throne, I would like my two boys to sit at your right hand and your left hand. You know, as close to the throne as they could possibly physically get. Yeah, so they're still <laughs> dealing with that. They're still arguing about who's going to have superiority. And that is really what this whole first, last, last, first thing is about. It's about Jesus leveling the playing field. And how often have we seen that? where he has said time and time again, you're all guilty, everybody's guilty, everybody needs a savior. This time he's going to say, if you have primacy in this world, you're going to be humbled. If you've been humbled in this world, you're going to be lifted up. And there is going to be a unity in my kingdom where there is only one hero, there's only one king, there's only one leader, and all the rest of you serve me. I don't do memes. You know what memes are? Yes. But for the first time ever in my life this week, I was tempted to create a meme. 
because there is this whole political controversy right now about whether black lives matter or whether all lives matter. And I wanted to create a meme that said only one life matters. Because when you get right down to it, every other life exists because that one life exists. And every other life exists to worship and serve the one life. There have been billions and billions of people who have lived on planet Earth, and they have all lived and died. And when it comes right down to it, their lives were, for the most part, not as consequential as Jesus' life. Only one life ever actually changed the eternal destiny of other lives. I like it. Put to a hashtag. Hashtag. Only one life matters? Is that what you're saying? All lives depend on one life. All lives depend on that one life. And that's the point. People don't change. Jesus' apostles were arguing about who was important. And that's what's happening in politics now. We're still arguing about who's important. And the answer is, Jesus is important. Everybody else serves him. Now, in order to understand, first and last, let's look at a couple of words here. The word first is protos. You're probably familiar with it. The first of any type we call the the prototype, the first of that type. So we're familiar with this Greek word protos. That's the word that is being translated first, but it's actually broader than just first. It means foremost. And so it can mean foremost numerically. It can mean foremost in sequence. But it can be foremost in importance. And it's used all those ways. And in fact, you're going to see Jesus use it both as foremost in being first numerically. And also he's going to use it as having primacy, as being first or foremost in importance. The word last you're also going to be familiar with because it's eschatos. Whenever we talk about last things, we use the word eschatology because the word eschatology does mean last. But it's bigger than just numerically last. It means kind of like the foremost idea, this is furthermost. So the one that is extended the furthest distance out. And so that's that idea of being last, of being furthermost. That is eschatos. So these two words can be used sequentially, the first one and the last one. But they can also be used to talk about status and social status, who's important, who's not important. And he's going to use the word both of those ways. So the way that he describes the first, last, last, first statement is that in chapter 20, verse 1, he begins with a parable and says, for the kingdom of heaven is like, and now he's going to describe what his kingdom is going to ultimately be like, how it's going to resonate, how it's going to work. It's like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius, which was a typical one-day wage, 
He agreed for a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. First thing I want to point out, most of you are probably familiar with this story. This is the only group of people with whom he actually agrees on an amount. The first people. Because he catches them early in the morning. They're going to work in the field all day. And he makes an agreement with them to pay them a day's wage. This is completely fair. I'm hiring you for the day. A day's wage is, is a denarius. I will agree with you for a denarius. Now go work in my field for a day. Completely equitable deal. But then he went out about the third hour of the day. Now the beginning of the day would be six in the morning, sun up. Third hour of the day, we're talking about nine o'clock in the morning. And he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you too go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. So, of course, their expectation is going to be, well, then he's probably going to prorate payment according to the amount of hours that I actually work. So then, verse 5, again, he went out at the sixth hour, it's about noon, and the ninth hour, that's about three in the afternoon, and he did the same thing. He kept finding people idle in the marketplace who weren't working, and he hired them to work. But rather than agreeing with them on an amount, he simply said, I'll pay you what's right. I'll pay you what's appropriate for your work. Go work in my field. And at about the 11th hour, this is the end of the day. It's nearly even. The sun is going to go down. You can't work in the fields anymore. There's no more light. At the 11th hour, he went out. He found others standing around, and he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. And he said to them, you too go into the vineyard. So he's got people who have been hired all day long. All of them have worked in the vineyard. Some have worked for barely an hour. Some have been there 12 hours. End of the day, time to settle up. And that's what we see in verse 8. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. So now we're starting to get this first last thing. He said, so pay them, but don't pay the people who got here first. Pay the people who got here last. Which means that the people who got there first are going to witness the payment that the last get. Had he begun by paying the people who started at six in the morning, they'd have taken their money and left, and they wouldn't have been witness to how he paid the rest of the group. But he wants the ones who were there at the beginning to see how he pays the ones who were there at the last. So start by paying the ones who were last. Verse 9, And when those who were hired at the eleventh hour came, each one received... A day's wage, a denarius, which, of course, made the people who had been there all day say, wait a minute, no fair. That's not right. Verse 10, and when those hired first came, they thought that they should receive more. Of course they did, because they saw what the people who were only there for an hour got paid. They got paid a whole day's wage. So the people who worked for a whole day thought, well, then I should get more than them because I've been here longer. That would be rational. That would be logical. 
Verse 11, they had received only one denarius, and when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner. Of course they did. Wait a minute. You said that if I worked here all day, you'd pay me a denarius. This guy worked an hour, and he got paid the same as I got paid. Shouldn't I be getting more than him? I worked more than him. And Jesus' answer is absolutely brilliant. Verse 12, they said to the landowner, these last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, friend, I am doing no wrong didn't you agree with me for a denarius? Okay, that's why it's important that back in verse 2 we read, and he agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day. So he gave them exactly what they agreed to. When I was a musician growing up, we had a phrase we used to use. Tom will be familiar with it. Jamie might be familiar with it. But the phrase was, you get what you play for. <laughs> At the beginning of the gig... You agree to play for some amount of money. And I actually played a job before, back in my college days, where I got paid the amount I agreed to get paid. And then I saw what the leader paid the sax player. And it was more than me. Right? Tom's nodding. And I actually was upset. I was like, hey, hey, hey. Not only did I haul drums in here, but I played as much as this guy played. In fact, I play from the beginning to the end of every song. He's the sax player. He's laying out a lot. Not fair. Not fair. <laughs> Pay me. And that phrase came up. Well, you get what you play for. You agreed to this amount. I paid you this amount. We're done here. Mm. Jesus said the same thing here. You agreed to a denarius. I paid you a denarius. In what way am I being unfair? But then Jesus goes beyond that. Verse 14 and says, take what is yours and go your way, but I wish to give to this last man the same as I gave to you, and is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? That's the key to it. Isn't it my right to do whatever I want with what's mine? And I choose to give to this last man the same amount as I gave to you. I have not in any way cheated you. I gave you exactly what we agreed to. But to this guy, I choose to give him the same amount I give you. And why is that wrong? I can do whatever I want with what belongs to me. Now, of course, remember that Jesus is teaching spiritual principles here. And what is he really saying? He's saying, I can do whatever I want with what's mine. So the question is, what is his? What belongs to him? Everything. Everything, exactly. Everything belongs to him. So can he do what he wants with what belongs to him? Yes. Sure. So you're going to have these people who worked all their lives, labored under Moses, kept the law, lived that kind of righteous and holy law-keeping life, and then they come to Jesus, and then they expect that, well, I'm going to have a reward. Not only did I live a righteous and a holy life, and now I have Christ, and now I'm going to be rewarded, and then there's going to be some bum, some scurvy knave, 
some person who their whole life has been lived in debauchery and sin, and they're also going to come to Christ, and they might not come to Christ till the very end of their life. And the righteous person, the legalist person is going to say, well, of course I'm getting heaven. Of course I'm in the kingdom. Look at the life I led. Exemplary. I did the hard work. I labored in the sun. I worked in your field. I did all that. Of course I'm in. How in the world is Jamie in? (laughs) Sorry. You get that a lot? (laughs) Yeah. How in the world can Jesus take sinners, depraved sinners, and end up giving them the same reward that was originally promised to Israel? Sure, the kingdom belongs to Israel. Of course it does. It always has. Ever since the Abrahamic covenant, the promises have always belonged to Israel. The prophets belong to Israel. Promises in the Old Testament, the kingdom, all belongs to Israel. And then there's going to be these dirty, sinful, unwashed, unclean, non-law-keeping Gentiles who by grace are going to be brought into the kingdom. And can you imagine the, the discontent that will grow from that? Well, of course, I'm here, but we have an agreement. Isn't that the point? The first ones had an agreement. We have an agreement. That if I follow Moses and if I follow you and if I live this life, then I'm going to inherit the kingdom. And Jesus is going to say, and you got exactly what we agreed to. Yeah, but what about him? How did he get in? Well, isn't it right for me to do what I want with what's mine? I can do whatever I want with what's mine. This story of the last, first, first, last, this story of paying the last worker the same as the first worker is a story of grace. And, of course, it's the one who thinks he earned it who's upset. People whose whole religion is based on works and based on law-keeping, those are always the people who complain when grace shows up. When grace happens, when people are brought to Christ through faith in Christ, With no works of the law at all, it's always the legalists who get upset and go, not fair. Why isn't that fair? Because I did the stuff. But if Christ, by grace, brings people to himself who did no work whatsoever, but simply to glorify himself, he brought these people to himself as an act of astounding grace, how do you get to complain about that? Because after all, he can do whatever he wants with what's his. And so the people who were first, who showed up first, the people who worked all day got paid last. The people who showed up last got paid first. And so the first were last and the last were first. Now he's going to apply this for us. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious? Because I am generous. And so many people are like that. When we say send the sinners, we have a message for sinners. Send us the unwashed, the depraved. Send us the people with no hope. We have a hope for them. 
We have a message for the people who have no other hope in the world. We can tell them about a Savior who actually completely and utterly saves despite all of their depravity and despite everything they've done. I deal all the time with people who the biggest difficulty they have in coming to Christ is that they can't get over what they've done. And they'll write to me and say, you just, you don't know. You don't know what I've done. And I write back and say, right, I don't need to know. He knows. He knows all of it. He knows it intimately. And he died for it. And he paid the price for it. And he took God's wrath for it. And he is perfectly willing to call you, to accept you, to forgive you, to redeem you, to do all that on your behalf. Come to him. He's the answer. He's the solution to your problem. And the people who have been legalistic their whole life will stomp and fume. And I can just hear Jesus saying, is your eye envious just because I'm generous? See, the reality is you can't work hard enough long enough or consistently enough to obligate God. Everything he does for everybody is ultimately an act of grace. These workers who came first were standing around looking for work at the beginning of the day. Had he not picked them and said, come work in my field, they'd still be standing there. They'd still be in the marketplace not working just like the others. Everybody who comes to Christ ultimately is in his vineyard working for him because he called them to that work. And whether he called you first, as he did the earliest Jewish church, whether he called you last, as he has in calling Gentiles here in the 21st century, regardless, it is still an act of God's grace in him doing exactly what he wants to do with what is his. And what he wants to do is call particular people to himself. And what you ought to be thinking is, well, thank God he called me. Mm-hmm. Instead of thinking, how in the world could he call that guy? Peter, at the end of the book of John, we read about Peter demonstrating that kind of attitude because Jesus told Peter the kind of death he was going to die. After he restored him three times, do you love me? You know that I love you. After those three times of saying, feed my sheep, feed my lambs. He then tells Peter that in his latter days, he's going to be bound and he's going to be taken to places he doesn't want to go. And they're going to treat him in ways he doesn't want to be treated. And John tells us parenthetically that Jesus was talking to Peter about the way that he was going to be martyred. And Peter sees John and says to Jesus, well, what about him? If that's what happens to me, what happens to him? And Jesus says a phrase that I have tried to hang on to for most of my adult life. He says, what is that to you? You follow me. We get so busy looking horizontally in this Christian life, thinking, well, this is happening to me, and I don't like what's happening to me. And look at Todd. Todd's doing fine. I'm suffering. Why doesn't Todd have to suffer? Shouldn't he? I mean, if I have to suffer, Todd should have to suffer. That's just how that goes. And if I do well and everything goes good for me, Todd should have to suffer. And if it... No. 
We're so busy looking horizontally. And when Peter tried to do that with John, Jesus couldn't have been more specific. First off, what is that to you? How does that change you at all? And so Jesus said, what if I keep him alive till I return? What is that to you? And then John tells us that's what began the rumor that John wouldn't die. And John points out he didn't say that. He said, what if, you know? So Jesus' point here in the last verse, first, last thing is very much the same. I'm in charge. I can do whatever I want with what's mine. And if you come and complain about the way I do what I do with what is mine, what is that to you? Why aren't you just grateful that I paid you? Now, of course, the payment here, obviously, is equitable to, equatable to, being in the kingdom. And if you're in the kingdom of God, do you really have any right to complain at all? Because if you start with thinking you have some kind of complaint, then you're starting from the footing of thinking that you actually have some standing. You have some authority. You've done some work. He owes you something, and so you have some right to complain. And so he is leveling the playing field and saying, you think you're so important. You're so impressed with yourself. I just equated you with the ones who came last. So everybody in the kingdom ultimately is going to be equal because, as I said, only one life matters. He's going to have the preeminence in his kingdom. He gets all the glory. He gets all the honor. And if you were really something in this lifetime, then he's going to humble you to bring you into the kingdom. If your whole life You've had nothing in this lifetime. He's going to raise you up in the kingdom. And the first will be last and the last will be first. So then for the next three verses, he talks again and foretells his death. And then they're going to go right back to arguing about who's going to have preeminence in the kingdom. And he's going to go right back to this same idea of first, last, last, first to teach them the lesson, and that helps us understand what the phrase means. So starting at verse 17, he yet again predicts what's happening. Again, he's refocusing them. Instead of worrying about their place, their importance, he's bringing them back to me. It's about me. Remember what's about to happen to me. As Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem He took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. Was there any surprise when that all happened? This was all predicted. It was all prophesied. The details had already been laid out by the prophets. Jesus himself knew that this had to happen this particular year, this particular Passover. And as we continue through Matthew, we're going to start seeing Jesus making these kinds of points where he keeps saying things like, with great longing, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. Now, he kept Passover with them every year. But this one mattered. 
this Passover. Because that was the Passover where he changed their focus. From the deliverance out of Egypt to the deliverance from sin that he was about to accomplish for them. And instead of remembering their deliverance out of Egypt, he was going to change their focus and say, remember me. When he goes into Jerusalem, he's going to curse the leaders of Jerusalem. He's going to deride them for their lack of understanding of the hour they were living in and the things that were occurring right there in Jerusalem. The culmination, the accomplishment of things that Daniel had predicted, that Daniel had even enumerated. That particular year, it was all coming to a head. Jesus was actually going into Jerusalem to accomplish the very thing that all of human history was designed to to accomplish. This was the culmination of human history. The very Son of God was going to ride in and again fulfill Scripture, ride on a colt and on a donkey that had never been ridden. And the people are going to throw their palm branches and their cloaks in the street and they're going to cry, Hosanna to the Son of David. And a couple days later, they're going to cry, crucify him. And none of this is by accident. Every bit of it is being accomplished based on God's predeterminate will since before the foundation of the world. The fall happened in Eden so that there would be a humanity that would need a savior so that Jesus could come to the planet and save people so that he would get all the glory and the preeminence and the righteousness and the holiness so that he would get all the glory. He'd get the praise forever and ever. This is God's divine eternal plan playing out. And he's reminding them of it yet again. This is why I'm here. This is why I'm on the planet. I'm here right now for this reason. I've come to die. I've come to save my people. And three days later, I'll be up again. Wouldn't you think, just logically, rationally, that after he made a statement that clear, that when he came out of the tomb, there should have been 11 guys standing there going, we knew it. There you are, just like you said. Especially because he said the other stuff. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. That all happened. So then they should have, logically, thought, well, then the other stuff's going to happen too. What did they do? Ran, hid scattered, save their own skin, abandon him because he had to accomplish everything he accomplished all by himself because only one life matters. I'm going to keep driving that point until you make a t-shirt out of it. Start the hashtag because he had to accomplish it all by himself. He does get the preeminence and everybody else, the field is leveled. The first or last, the last or first. I'm the one that matters. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and they will deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. I saw a a special this past Easter, one of those um, learning channel specials, you know, let the world tell you what the Bible really is about kind of specials. And I watched it shaking my head the whole time and trying to resist the, uh, the desire to throw things at my television. <laughs> and they claimed that Jesus, who they humanized completely and took all of his godhood out of his history and character, they said 
that because he was gaining a following, that's why the Romans wanted to kill him, and that because he was upsetting the Jewish religion, that's why the Jews wanted to kill him, and that he was a good teacher who was stirring people up, and so he was surprised. He thought, according to them, he thought, this is going good. I'm building a following. You know, I'm probably going to start some kind of a thing. And then he died, and that he didn't see it coming. That that was kind of a surprise to him because uh, he had stirred things up politically, and this is what happens to people who stir things up politically. And, of course, they didn't talk at all about the resurrection outside of saying that there were some stories later by his followers designed to keep the movement going that claimed that he had raised again. But according to the Bible, he not only knew what was about to happen, he was confirming it by the prophets and said it over and over and over again. This is what's going to happen. Then no surprise, that's exactly what happened. Because he's in charge and he can do what he wants with what is his. Did you have your hand up? Yeah. The, the teachers knew Absolutely. Yeah, the rabbis prior to Jesus getting here really struggled with what Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 53, this idea that he would not only die, but then God would prolong his days. They just couldn't figure out how that could work. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do both. I'm going to die, and God's going to prolong my days. Resurrection was the thing that they couldn't quite get straight. So now Jesus has centered the whole thing back on himself. I can do whatever I want with what's mine. I can humble the high. I can raise up the low. I can level the playing field. This is all about me. I'm going to die. I'm going to raise again. This is really all about me. Verse 20, this is almost like a slap in the face. Verse 20 just comes rushing into this narrative and says, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee, who is that? Who were the sons of Zebedee? John and James. James who were among the first disciples that Jesus chose, John and James and Peter. So they're the first. They're the ones who were there at the beginning. They're the ones who right from the start were with him, who could say, we've been with you for three and a half years. We labored in the sun. We're, we're, we're the first. We're right there with you. <laughs> then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him, And he said to her, what do you wish? And she said, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. First off, you sent your mom to do this. (laughs) You know what, boys? Just hang on. I'll go talk to him. (laughs) I'll handle this. Here comes mom. It's like they're 10-year-old. Yeah, right, like they're still little kids. So Jesus said to her, you don't know what you're talking about. He said, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't understand anything. You don't get that these things aren't even up to me. This is all up to God. You don't even understand what the kingdom is like. To ask for a throne next to my throne? Do you know who I am? Have you understood anything about me? 
I'm the one who's going to die to redeem Israel, to redeem the chosen elect people of God, and then I'm going to raise to life again, and then I'm going to have a throne at the right hand of God Almighty. By the way, that would mean, since you asked to sit on my right and left, to my left will be my Father God. And you want that chair? You want to sit on my right and left? You don't even know what you're talking about. He said to her, you do not know what you're asking for. Then he said, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Okay, now that language ought to sound familiar and ought to take you all the way to Gethsemane. Because when Jesus was praying until his sweat was like great drops of blood, he used that language of cup. And he said, if it were possible, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So he's talking about the cup of God's wrath. He says, are you able to drink from that cup? Could you be a martyr the way I'm going to be a martyr? Could you be beaten? Could you be hated? Could you take on the wrath the way I'm going to? And they say, yeah, we're able. (laughs) Yeah, we can do that. Again, indication that they have no idea what they're talking about. So he said to them, my cup you shall drink. And sure enough, they died martyrs. James, one of the two who asked, was among the very first of the martyrs in the early church. Stephen and James, back to back, killed early. That'll teach you to brag. Yeah, okay, you're going to drink from my cup. But to sit on my right or on my left, that's not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Look at the humility of Jesus. Even he, time and time again, acquiesced his own will to the Father's will. So whatever the Father decides, that's what's going to happen. And there are some things that are just not up to me. And yet you humans, you fleshly, sinful, egocentric humans, you keep thinking that stuff is up to you. And it's not. It's up to God. And you have to leave these things in his hands. So, so far we've seen Jesus saying, I can do what I want with what's mine. And sometimes he says, and there are some things even I can't do. Some things are completely up to my father, and I leave them in my father's hands. And yet we human beings walk around thinking we're in charge. (laughs) We think we have some authority. And we talk about things we have no idea. So he says, these things I can't give to you. It's for those who have been prepared by my father It is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And after hearing this, the other ten became indignant with the two brothers. Of course they did. Of course they did. Because this is what they're still all about. They're still arguing about who's important. And right in the middle of Jesus giving an example of the last first, first, last... And then Jesus explaining, this is about me. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to raise again. This is about me. They end up saying, yeah, but what about us? 
yeah, can I have the right chair and the left chair? And then the other ten are like, you guys, why are you like just arguing amongst themselves when in fact you would think they'd be going, tell us more about that you're going to die thing and then you're going to be back again? That just goes right past them because they're so busy being self-involved the way human beings are. Now think about it because this is also very common to this very day. So much of so-called Christianity, so much of evangelical Christianity is built on this is really all about you. There are plenty of people promoting the sub-biblical, sub-Christian theology that says Christianity is about you. What can Christianity do for you? How can Christianity make your life hipper, cooler, faster? And Christianity in the Bible is never about you. It's always about Christ. When we sing praises, when we sing worship songs, we don't sing songs about our mighty God and Micah. Because we sing about God, because it's about God. It's not about God and somebody. Everybody else exists, has their being, lives their lives, and they end up either judged or redeemed based on Christ who can do whatever he wants with what's his. He's going to say, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me. I get to do whatever I want. He's doing his father's will, which is to save those people that his father gave him before the foundation of the world. These things are being determined and decided and accomplished completely external to you. What do you add to any of it? Nothing. This is all being done as an act of grace and as an act of sovereignty by a God who does whatever he wants with what is his. And we just keep thinking that we can insert ourselves into that and offer an opinion or an idea that will somehow change the outcome. And we have no such authority. So they, who should have been saying, tell us more about this dying, raising thing, they're too busy arguing amongst themselves. And so hearing this, the ten become indignant with the two brothers who sent their mom to ask for the right and the left chair. Verse 25, but Jesus called them, all of them, to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and that their great men exercise authority over them. Okay, so who would those people be? The rulers of the Gentiles would be the primary people. They're the first. They're the protos. And he's about to call them that. He's about to use that exact same Greek word to say people in this world who are the primary people are the first people. It is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Haven't we already heard this? He has said it repeatedly throughout the book of Matthew as they have continued to argue amongst themselves about who's going to be the primary one. He has said to them, if you really want to be great, you serve. And of course, that's going to be exemplified at the Last Supper when Jesus, who is the primary one, when Jesus, who is the important one, takes off his robe puts a towel around his waist and takes on the form of the lowest servant in the household and washes their dirty, smelly, stinky feet.
which is the last place the king of glory belongs. But that's where he places himself. And then says to them, now what I've done for you, do for each other. He gives them an object lesson. Look after each other. If you want to be great, be humble. If you want to be great in my kingdom, serve other people. It's not to be so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first, there's that word, protos. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave, be your servant. Okay, now that helps us understand that whole first, last, last, first thing, because he used the exact same Greek word. Do you wish to be first? Then be last. And the one that is last then is the one who becomes first through your service to them. God reached incredibly low to get to you. God who lives in eternal splendor in a light that no man approaches. God who is surrounded by angels who cry out about his holiness. That God reached so far down that he came to sinners like us. And that becomes your example. Christ, who has always existed in the form of the Father, who is one-third of the Godhead, who didn't think it was robbery to make himself equal with God, that one took on human flesh and lowered himself all the way to the cross. Not for himself, not because of any guilt within himself. He did all that because of you, for you. To save you. That becomes your example. That's what Philippians 2 is all about. Use that as your example of humility. And then let that mind be in you that was also in Christ. The Bible keeps saying it over and over again. It's essential to Christianity. This is fundamental Christianity 101. Do you want to be great? Serve. You want to be Christian? You want to be a follower of Christ? Then serve other people. And in so doing, you will end up serving people who have always been last. And you'll raise them up. You'll lift them up. When you're kind to people who don't deserve it, then their estate is improved. So he says, it's not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first, primary among you, shall be your slave. And then he equates it to himself, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and then to what degree? To give his life as a ransom for many, as a payment, as a ransom payment. God requires a payment from you. The wages of sin is death. Every human who is sinful, which would be all of us, owes God a debt. And God is going to make sure and balance that debt. And he is either going to balance it by you personally paying your debt to him through eternal punishment. Or that debt is going to be paid through a ransom paid by somebody else. You know what the word ransom means, right? If you steal somebody, kidnap somebody, steal somebody. If you kidnap somebody, you don't keep them. You write a ransom note. You write and say, I don't really want this person. What I want is your money. And then if they pay you the ransom, you let the person go free. 
It's the exact same idea. We are all completely captured by our sinfulness. And we all owe a debt to God we can't possibly pay. So Christ not only paid the debt, but he made himself the debt. I am the payment. When his blood flowed, it was sufficient payment that we who had been captured by sin, who were slaves to sin all our lives, were set free. Free from our debt, free from our sin, and free then to worship God appropriately and rightly. Because he made himself a ransom. And he didn't owe that to anybody. He took on the wrath of God, which when he thought about it, when he saw it coming, when he considered it, was so horrible that he actually said, if there's a way out of this, I'd rather not do this. He prayed with such terror that his sweat was like great drops of blood. I've never prayed like that of you. It's the last time you sweat blood in your prayers. That's what he was facing. And not for himself. He was still the righteous and sinless son of God. He could have very easily just gone back to heaven, taken his right-hand seat, and said, forget them. It's not worth it. But because this is what the father had determined for him to do, out of obedience to his father, he humbled himself all the way to the ignominious death on the cross with all the pain and the torture that went with it, with having his beard plucked out, with being punched in the face, with the very son of God being spit on by human beings and mocking him in the streets and then making him carry his instrument of torture through the streets and then nailing him to that piece of wood. He endured all of that for other people in order to pay the ransom price to redeem those people. And then he said, now knowing that about me, how should you be? What's too much? Considering what he did for you, what's too much for you to do for the least of his people? Well, then, if you think you're the first, become last. If you think you're last, recognize that in Christ and in the people of Christ, you're going to be raised up. You're going to be made first. And he's going to level the playing field so that, once again, it's all about him. And out of love for him, out of obedience to him, out of worship to him, those of us who might think we're something have to recognize he's the only one who's something. And because of his somethingness, we have to recognize our nothingness and our servanthood to him. Now, I want to worship him. I want to serve him. It is my desire to serve him. It's my goal in life to serve him. But he's not here. And there's not a lot I can do directly for him. He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's in splendor right now. I can't add anything to him. So how do I serve him? I serve his people. Because they're here. They're tangible. They're right here. They're right within my sphere of influence. And if you are dealing with somebody else, some other Christian, somebody else who belongs to Christ... And, and you have difficulty with them, you have difficulty with their personality, if you look at them and say, well, yeah, they're last, they probably deserve to be last. I mean, look at them. <laughs> you know? They've got last written all over them. It's across their forehead, big L, last. Is that no longer cool? That was cool once. Is that, that's over, right? Okay. That's loser. Yeah. But it's, 
It's laster now. Yeah. Last. Yeah, well, if you can't find anything within them that makes them attractive to you, well, then how unattractive were you when Christ died for you? And how far did he come for you despite the fact that you were just like you are? Recognizing all of that, then you should be gracious to his people and within the community, within the body of Christ, there shouldn't be anybody last. Those that are last should be pulled up. Those that are first, believe me, are going to be brought down. And in the kingdom of Christ, there's only going to be one hero. And there are going to be a whole lot of people who spent their whole lives in lasthood who are going to be in the kingdom of God, and it doesn't get better than that. There are going to be a whole lot of people who were really something on this planet who are going to be humbled dramatically before they get to the kingdom of God. And only he can regenerate us to be like that. Only he can do that. But then again, he can do whatever he wants with what's his, right? Sometimes we go through troubles in this life, go through struggles and trials in this life, and and are just so prone to ask the question, why? And the answer is, because he can do whatever he wants with what's his. And the answer is, he's going to do it anyway. Why are you kicking against it all the time? Just like he said to Paul when he met him on the Damascus Road and said, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. God's constantly goading you and driving you, and you just keep kicking against it. Why don't you just give up and take sides with God against yourself? And how about you come and serve me for the rest of your life? And that's the way Christianity works. You go through your life going, me, 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 me. You sing the me song every day. You wake up in the morning, it's me, more me. Love me, look at me go. But enough about me. Let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Me, me, me. And then Christ will interrupt your life and say, no, 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 it's me. It's all about me. This isn't about you. And that is an act of astounding grace. If he will do that for you, if he will humble you, if he will take you out of that first position and move you down to the worship position, that is an astounding act of grace that he does for his people. But your reaction to all of that, your reaction to the recognition that he has done that to you, is then to treat his people with the same kind of grace and kindness with which he treated you. And that's the whole first, last, last, first thing. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time as we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.